Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Crossroads is a new podcast series from Actors Express. Later this hour, we'll hear about this series described as an adventurous story by people of color, about people of color, and for people of color. First, the Atlanta Music Project, also known as AMP, presents Music of the African Diaspora, a festival now in its second year. This year's events will be virtual, beginning tomorrow through Sunday. Dante Ramo is co-founder and chief executive officer of the Atlanta Music Project. He joins us via Zoom with Aisha Moody, the chief program officer for AMP. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. For those who may not yet be familiar with the Atlanta Music Project, Would you give us some background on the organization and what it does? Yes, of course. The Atlanta Music Project was founded in 2010, so we're celebrating our 11th season. And we provide intensive tuition-free music education in under-resourced neighborhoods to youth ages kindergarten all the way through college. And our mission is to empower underserved youth to realize their possibilities through music. We believe in an intense approach to learning a music instrument in such a way that a young person experiences artistic competence and and a sense of of excellence and a sense of striving and, and improving oneself. We believe that that level of intensity leads to great character development, skill development that can be used, of course, in music, but also in life in general. And so we've we've gone from starting off with 20 or 30 elementary school kids at a city of Atlanta rec center in southwest Atlanta to now serving 300 students per year with a 100% college graduation rate. We have our own building in the Capitol View neighborhood south of downtown Atlanta, where we host youth orchestras, youth choirs, and private lessons. 
And so we've come a long way since 2010, and we're super excited for uh, what we have in store for you all this week. Oh, yes, please tell us what will be included in the festival music of the African diaspora. Well, this year, of course, we are virtual. So it feels a bit different because instead of seeing our full orchestra and choir on stage, uh, you'll see what we've been working on behind the scenes at AMP, which is giving students more individualized attention. So you will see here from many of our soloists in the AMP Academy, which is our private lessons program. And then you will hear chamber music ensembles, which we have created uh, due to COVID, where students meet in small groups weekly to work on their craft. In addition to that, you'll see something very special, which we don't often see at AMP, which is a teaching artist concert called Studio Sessions. And I know that's going to be a hit for everyone. Who will that teaching artist be? We've been very adamant since the beginning of our program that we want our young people to get the best instruction in order for them to get the best experience. And so we hire and pay some of the top musicians that are professionals in the city of Atlanta to teach them. And we always... Uh, you know, we tend to focus mainly on the students and showing the world their talent and their abilities. But behind the scenes, quietly, we have an amazing faculty. And we usually feature them once per year in the summer series on opening night. And this year, we decided to include them on the music of the African Diaspora Music Festival. So this Friday at 7 p.m., live on Facebook, we are going to hear solos, chamber music, ensembles. (laughs) I say that, you know, with air quotes because the the ensembles are are virtual and some of the teachers recorded themselves, you know, playing seven part pieces where they're they're playing all seven parts. And so they're very talented. It's going to be very exciting. And I think especially our our students are going to be blown away by who is teaching them. Can you tell us who they are? Yes, of course. So I can I can talk about a few and so, for example, we have Jonathan Colbert, who is a double bassist. He's from Atlanta. He played way back when in the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra. He taught with us for our first two, three years. And then he actually got a job in an orchestra in Denmark and, and left us. <laughs> and then um, he actually came back. Uh, we were very fortunate to have him back. And so um, Jonathan has, has placed our young bass students in, in all-state ensembles. And he's, he's helped them get to college. And, and now he's going to show us how he plays Deep River. A quartet of Jonathan's will play Deep River for us. Another example is Miss Pamela Dillard, uh, who is on faculty at Spelman. She's a voice teacher there. She's a mezzo soprano. And she is a, a, a wonderful 
performer. And I'm not sure that our students, Aisha, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure that our students have ever seen her perform. And she's just stupendous. And she'll be doing a spiritual um, accompanied by Trey Clegg, the pianist. And so these are, these are the kinds of things that I'm really excited to share. And it's going to be a, a wonderful evening. Aisha, would you talk about the variety of works that will be performed and discussed at the festival. I knew a conductor who used to talk about hardening of the categories as a very dangerous thing. And Duke Ellington's famous saying about there are only two kinds of music, good and all the other stuff, that comes to mind. What kind of music can listeners expect to hear? Oh, yeah, that was, those were some good quotes <laughs> for my answer. Right along those lines, you know, this year, uh, due to everything that our world, our country, our youth have been dealing with, we've really been centering student voices and their thoughts and their perspectives and their needs in order to make sure that we're serving them correctly. And they really had a strong desire to do what we have done in the past with the African diaspora, which is focus, focus on a variety of artists, but they wanted to make sure that those who don't always get the spotlight do get a bit of spotlight this year. And they also wanted to throw in a lot of fun music just to make people smile because they know that people need smiles right now. You're going to hear some Florence Price, some Margaret Bonds, and, and the, the soloists have really taken their time to study these artists and their works and understand um, you know, the pieces that they're performing. And then we have some Stevie Wonder. And of course you have Duke Ellington in there as well. And what you'll find is uh, soloists and um, instrumentalists. And sometimes you'll hear an instrumentalist performing something that you would typically hear a soloist doing, you know, like some of the hymns uh, or spirituals that we're accustomed to that have, been, um, uh, that have been arranged specifically for that instrument because we have young singers and we sometimes do our own arrangements. of, you know, people of the African diaspora is a variety of music, you know, and um, it's not all sounds of struggle. There are also sounds of triumph and music that got people through with solidarity, which is why we call it Songs of Solidarity. The last uh, finale show was Songs of Solidarity. So I think you'll get a bit of the entire spectrum. You'll get the, 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 um, the grief and sorrow as well as the joys 
and the triumphs and then just being able to just be a young artist that makes people smile and feel lighthearted and laugh through the music of African of the diaspora. That's what we were going for. So I think that's what you'll get. And styles ranging Everything. from jazz, spirituals, traditional classical, Caribbean, R&B, <laughs> you know, it's all in there. Yeah. So classical composers such as Florence Price and Margaret Bonds are sharing the program lineup with the likes of Stevie Wonder and Duke Ellington. Absolutely. Have events of the past year, especially our nation's reckoning with racial injustice, informed what you do at the Atlanta Music Project? Yes and no. I think that for us, when we started this 10 years ago or 11 years ago, this was, in a sense, a program that seeked to serve youth in Atlanta who either you know, couldn't afford music instruction or who really lived in areas where it wasn't available, either through public schools or just because they were far away from, from music instruction and, and youth orchestras and youth choirs. And what that, what, where that put us is um, in Southwest Atlanta, there are many areas we could have gone, but we started in Southwest Atlanta, which is a majority African-American population. Uh, the schools are, um, you know, when we were starting, 80, 90% African-American students. And so we feel that taking high quality music education into that sort of community is an act of uh, racial justice. And so we've been working hard to help the people that we serve, the young people that we serve, discover that they are already amazingly talented. And we really just try to help guide them to become the best version of themselves. Now, of course, this year, this past year happened, and we couldn't just continue on. Even though we were doing things that were empowering, and inspiring to our students, we had to really acknowledge that this this was different. And this was being played out on social media it, it, for everyone to see. And so I think we had to make some real adjustments in order for us to help our students acknowledge and also um, deal with the things that were going through their minds that they were seeing that were that were traumatic. Exactly. Like, yeah, I echo what, what Dante said. As, as far as the way AMP approaches its work, everyone always wants to be the best version of themselves. And um, AMP has worked hard to help our students to do that, you know, from the very beginning. And so with this, I think they realized that, that AMP does that, and they wanted to be able to talk about it a little bit more and talk about how their art affects how people view them and um, how their art affects how, how Blacks are viewed throughout the world. I think that conversation took center stage um, more so than it has in the past. And we allowed them to just talk, you know, and we just listened. And we asked them, you know, how do you want to represent yourself in the world through your art? And that's how we came up with what we have here. So the pieces that have been chosen are not necessarily chosen by me or the teaching artists. They're the students coming together and saying, I think this is um, something that the world needs to hear. Oh, wow. Part of the national conversation in the arts has brought attention to a lack of diversity in classical music organizations. 
Have you observed any changes? I think the change that I've seen the most in the classical music world since George Floyd has been more playing of music from African-American composers or um, African diaspora. But if we, if we want to see classical music that represents America, you know, in its, in its, in its diversity and you know, demographics, I think there's still a long way to go. And so we hope to uh, you know, continue to do what we do um, in our neck of the woods. Hopefully a few of our students end up in the world of classical music, whether it's on the stage or off the stage uh, or maybe in boardrooms as donors. That's certainly something that uh, would be nice to see, but it's going to take a while, I think, before we see meaningful change. Aisha, do you, what, do you, what, what do you think? Of course, I agree with what you just said, but I think, you know, and some, some people may feel that the conversation has sort of fizzled down a bit, but I really think it just uh, planted seeds that we have yet to see sprout. So there are organizations like AMP that, you know, have been doing this and will continue to do this to the very best of our ability. And, you know, hopefully there will be more organizations like AMP that, you know, address these matters more directly. But I also feel that there may be other changes in our field that are coming out of this. You know, I think it sort of awakened some people and um, allowed people that may not have been having this conversation or at least not with each other to start having this conversation with each other and say what you know what can we do what do we what do we want to do so I think you know it remains to be seen um where this takes us but as Dante said in the meantime we know we're just gonna keep doing what we do in our neck of the woods and and see what happens with our youth and and if I can just say one more thing about this um Aisha kind of touched on it in in every community in the United States there is a program or a music teacher or um, a youth orchestra, a youth choir that is similar to AMP. We're not the only ones that saw a need in, in a particular neighborhood and said, you know what, we need to put music education in, in this neighborhood and, and serve you know, this community. And so I think that that is um, you know, a, a gem. It, it, it's, it's maybe an undiscovered partnership between the legacy institutions like the orchestras and the big music conservatories and programs that have been on the ground for decades that have access to the communities that classical music would like to see in its ecosystem. And so I would encourage the classical music world to seek out organizations that have been working in communities of color that are led by people of color that have been working in these communities for decades, sort of, you know, without any recognition. Uh, But that may hold the key to moving the classical music world in the direction that we all want to see it go. Oh, I think that is profound insight, Dante, that this sort of grassroots effort that has been ongoing among educators is what we need to elevate if classical music is to be more inclusive. The Atlanta Music Project was selected as a finalist out of 200 applicants for the Lewis Prize, a prize of $500,000 the finalists were competing for. 
And the selection process for that prize was intense. What did you do to make it to the final round? We did what we what we always do. And I think that it's always been really, really important to us to do a few things. One, we've always wanted to provide high quality and intensity. It's it's one thing to provide programming for youth that are under-resourced. But it's another thing to offer something that is going to require kids to be there four, five, six days per week, four hours per day. It's quite the commitment. But what happens is, really, you know, students really become empowered and confident in who they are and who they can become. Um, and through that, that uh, concept we've always prioritized the the voice of our students we've we t- we we teach in a way where students feel that they have a voice um, in fact when we opened our new center in may of 2019 we told our students this is your house and within a month they came to us and said well if it's our house we want to produce our own concert and we said go right ahead and the only thing that stopped them from from actually putting on this show was COVID-19. So I think the third thing that we are, you know, we focused on is partnerships. For us, we're not a K-12 program. For us, we're, we're a K through college graduation program. And so we've really made sure to partner with Atlanta Public Schools, to partner with uh, Clayton State University, where we have a college scholarship, to make sure that our kids are within an ecosystem that is supporting them in their academics and their career as well. And I think we've been doing that and for, for 10 years and we've, we've fine-tuned our processes and our systems and um, you know, our kids can do some, some things artistically and I think maybe that's, those are the reasons why we, we may have gotten as far as we did in the Lewis Prize. Well, please tell us about the outcome. Well, we were in the finalists. I think there were eight organizations around the country that were selected from, as you said, about 200. And we were given, unfortunately, not the, the top prize of half a million dollars, but we were awarded an infusion award, they called it, which was worth uh, $50,000. So that is definitely very, very helpful, especially during COVID times. And we really appreciate the Lewis Prize for the opportunity to, to be recognized in this way. How will you use that money from the Lewis Prize? We're going, we're going to use part of it, and this was a big part of our application to develop a sort of a, a student leadership and entrepreneurship branch of our programming. And so that will entail sort of uh, assisting youth with college prep, assisting youth with learning how to start their own music business, for example, whether it's teaching music to, to younger kids, whether it's performing music for pay at community events or you know, weddings or funerals, uh, whether it's composing and arranging music and selling that online for other music educators to use for their classes, things like that. And we also want to make sure that our students uh, know a little bit about governance. So we've already established a student government, which is sort of a vehicle for our kids to learn how to advocate for themselves and advocate for policies and things that they believe in through a governance system. And hopefully this will help them, uh, you know, as they you know go through high school they go through college uh, to learn how to, how to do advocacy work. And this is also very important in light of the events of this past year. Uh, as Aisha said, you know, our kids have a lot on their mind and we need to provide vehicles for them to express themselves. And so 
having a student government is can be a bit of a headache for adults, as you could imagine. But <laughs> it's really, really important that we are developing artists and, and citizens, you know, citizen artists, if you will. And so the Lewis Prize funding helps with getting these uh, you know, programs off the ground. Dante Rameau is the co-founder and chief executive officer of the Atlanta Music Project. He was joined by Aisha Moody, co-founder and director of Amplify, the choral music program of the Atlanta Music Project. The Festival Music of the African Diaspora begins tomorrow at 7 p.m. and runs through Sunday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Self-esteem is especially important to instill in young children. And Tanya Terry has written a children's book with that very theme in mind. The author of You Are Loved joins us now via Zoom. Tanya Terry, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Why did you write this book? You know, I'm so excited about this book. You know, I was I was led to write You Are Loved through a dream that I had. And I, I felt the message needed to be shared with our children to let them know just how much they're loved uh, and love the way God created them. And, um, you know, the story, you know, it's written in the form of a poem and it features an African-American girl you know, who learns just how much she's loved and supported by family and friends. And she learns the power of self-love and the importance of giving back, which that latter point, I think, you know, isn't really highlighted in too many children's books. So I'm so glad I was able to highlight that importance as well. I'm curious about the poetry. I love that it rhymes. And I know children, particularly very young children, respond well to rhyming. Did that come to you easily? Yes, it does. I mean, in my freestyle writing, I, I typically like to write in the form of a poem. So that did come to me. And, you know, the books that I read to my my nephew, for example, a lot of those books rhyme and he, he just he loves it. Uh, you know, kids, younger kids specifically respond well, like you said, to that kind of Dr. Seuss format. <laughs> <laughs> Would you read the book to us? Yes, I have a book here. I will, I will read it to you. It's short and sweet, uh, but it starts off. Go. Um, Do you know how much you are loved, special and unique, created by God above? 
child, do you know how beautiful you are? From your curly hair to your pretty brown skin, you are a star. When you wake in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I am loved and will be the best me today. You can be anything you want to be, an inventor, doctor, scientist, teacher, so many possibilities. To change the world you have the power to do, rise and stand tall so your voice will shine through. Sometimes things will be tough, but this you should know, we all are here to see you succeed and grow. Oh, the good laughs you will have with your friends, that feeling you will want again and again. And always remember to help those in need, for you are love to return love indeed. So lovely. And, and look at all the different things you touch upon. Aspiration, professional ambition or achievement, charity, self-worth. Why is it especially important to empower children during these times? Uh, you know, especially during these times, right? Because we've, you know, we've all endured a lot in 2020. And, you know, I think the book is timely and reminding kids of this message of positivity and love. And this is something that, again, to have that reinforced through the parents or family or friends is something that needs to remain consistent in this time, this volatile time where a lot of people are in isolation, um, last year, we dealt with the election, what happened with the insurrection, just a lot going on. And so to be reminded, not only in words, but in action, that they're loved, it's something that children need. I think we all need to hear it and feel it. Please tell us about the illustrations. Yes. So that was one thing that you weren't able to see, obviously, through this, but the illustrations are um, so little um, um, brown girl with puffs in her hair and a little bow. And she's featured throughout every page on the book, actually. It starts off with, do you know how much you were loved? And her grandmother is telling her that. She's sitting in her grandmother's lap and her, her grandmother's telling her that. It's really important, especially for Black and brown children to see themselves represented positively in the books that they read, because that helps create a sense of self-importance and just helps build confidence and a healthy image. So there's another image of her sitting in the classroom. Again, we're saying you can be anything you want to be. And she's sitting there and has her book open and she's thinking about all the things that she can be, especially for young girls, um, black and brown girls. It's again, you're talking about the to change the world. You, you have the power to do that. You know, rise and stand tall so your voice will shine through. And and you know, this book released on December 1st. And it was, again, timely because, you know, President-elect Kamala Harris, young black and brown girls were seeing themselves in a higher office, you know, in a higher position. There's examples of this every day. But again, it was just so we're starting to see more and more of it. And I think it's important to, again, encourage that. Do you think you'll write another children's book? Yes. When I wrote this, I have another one that I wrote that's it's longer. It's about my nephew. So I haven't actually gone through the illustration and, and publication phase of it, but I do have that waiting to be released. <laughs> well, I think the book is appropriate for boys as well as girls. And Tanya, Terry, I thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. Author Tanya Terry, her new children's book, You Are Loved, 
is out now. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess is often called the Great American Opera. Yet, 86 years after its premiere, the piece continues to raise questions about racial representation and cultural appropriation. Last spring, the Atlanta Opera presented Porgy and Bess with the internationally renowned bass Morris Robinson in the role of Porgy. Here he explains why he was originally reluctant to perform that role. When I came into the business early on, a lot of the veterans that had been down this path said, stay away from those types of roles because the natural assumption is you're an African-American, you have a deep voice, you can sing Old Man River, you can sing Porgy. And once you've established yourself as someone that does that, no one really at the time had the vision to see you cast as other things. So I stayed away from it for those reasons. My issue with it nowadays is not as similar as it was before. I've established myself for nearly 20 years as someone that sings German and Italian repertoire, but now it's about perpetuating stereotypes. It's about images that we don't even try to but need to distance ourselves away from on the stage. There has to be other material that can depict us in a more positive sense. And so I struggle with that. The one thing that keeps me with Porgy and Bess is I love the message. I love the story. I love the character of Porgy because he is the most respected. He is the stalwart of the community. He is the person that people look up to. So there is dignity in playing those types of roles. But I do think that there is a time where we have to say, you know what? we got to find other things. To say that a white guy wrote this story about Negro life, I've changed my mindset about that because in talking with a scholar, Naomi Andre, you know, he was Jewish. So he wasn't really favorably upon as much as someone else would have been in the 1920s and 30s. So, but that doesn't mean that it's truly what we are. He did a wonderful job of depicting what he heard and what he saw. And I respect his musicianship and I love the music. But the images, I think, that are being perpetuated, you know, we have to deal with that in a positive sense and find other material that represents us more adequately and accurately and get away from the, uh, the Sambo and all that other stuff, you know. I know that members of your cast, along with Dr. Naomi Andre, the professor who wrote Black Opera History, Power Engagement, had an event at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. I was on the panel. Yeah, so tell us what came out of it, please. Well, I think what came out of it was very much what I talked about just now, uh, an awareness. But the most important thing that I think people that sit in the seats need to understand is that I didn't come from the 1920s, 1930s, the 1950s, and the transformation that we have to go through to place ourselves mentally, characteristically into those positions is tough. It's a huge journey to go from that to this. And I often walk around Atlanta, I ride through with my dad and see things that he couldn't do, restaurants where he couldn't eat, places where he couldn't go to school, that have been available to me. And it's like, I always walk around with this wish factor, like I wish I knew what it was like to do that and how I'd behave differently. I get a chance to do that on stage and I, I can't behave like I thought I would because I have to act within the parameters of what's been written. So, you know, the psychological journey 
it's tough even to get to that characterization on stage. So I think that's very interesting for people to understand that, you know, we are not robots. We are people with emotions and sensitivities. And in order to become what you enjoy on stage, it takes a tremendous mental transformation. Let's talk about the music. Every tune in this <coughs> opera is memorable, dare I say unforgettable. And it's no surprise that jazz, pop, and classical artists have recorded songs from Porgy and Bess. What are the musical high points? I can't think of one thing that says that I love more than the next. I mean, every time you hear one, first of all, it starts off as summertime. Hard to beat that. You know, it's one of the most beautiful, most lyrical pieces ever written, and we all know it. From Nina Simone to Sammy Davis Jr. to Frank Sinatra, everyone has done that tune, I mean, even jazz instrumentalists. So it sets the tone right there. You got a woman is a sometime thing. You got it ain't necessarily so. You got best you is my woman. You got I love you porgy. How can you forget that? The hits go on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So I think I don't have a musical highlight. I think that I just enjoy the wave of the process. Even if on stage, I enjoy hearing all these things, you know. Best you is my woman. favorite moments, though, I will say, is when Bess sings the reprise of Summertime in a different key, because at that moment, you know, she has really transformed from being what she was at the beginning of the opera to being a mom. It's always stage where she's by herself, and she's really just kind of in that moment. I think that's the most beautiful moment, singularly for me, because, of course, I'm also standing off stage ready to kill Crown at that moment to kind of solidify that which she's already claimed. So that, to me, is the most powerful moment. The playwright Lorraine Hansberry noted that African Americans have suffered great wounds from great intentions. Does the music of Porgy and Bess heal some of the wounds? I had a colleague tell me that for everything that happens in your life, there's a line in Porgy and Bess that can relate to it. And because of that, I don't know if there's healing, 
with a certainly relatability. Not to just every line, but every character on that stage that has a part. You have Serena, who is the, the backbone, the religious matriarch mother figure who lost her husband, but she's very religious, and she kind of holds it together. You have Mariah, who isn't taking much off of anybody, and she's kind of the enforcer type. You got Porgy, who's the cerebral, who's the leader, who's the man, even though he's crippled. You have Crown, who's kind of the bully and the jerk around, but he's part of the community. You have Sporting Life, who's kind of the weasel. You got Bess, whoever loves and embraces, who goes through a journey, who comes back, and actually, it's part of the church and part of the religious services. It has a huge journey. You Everyone on that stage with any part, you have Jake who is working really hard because he's going to send his kid to college and he's saving that money right away. We know that guy. We know his wife. We know the kid. You know, we all have those scenes to relate to. So I think that the element of humanity that is displayed in this opera, coupled with the beautiful music, makes it attractive and makes it relatable to a vast amount of people. So that's the beauty of this show. Bass Morris Robinson, speaking about his role as Porgy in the Atlanta Opera's 2020 production of Porgy and Bess. Morris Robinson is part of the Atlanta Opera's Virtual Love Letters to Atlanta series. He sings The Impossible Dream at the Fox Theater. That recorded performance is streaming now. Crossroads is a new podcast series from Actors Express, and it's not surprising that arriving at a crossroads, Actors Express would combine innovation with depth of thought. Freddie Ashley is the artistic director of Actors Express. He joins us now with Amanda Washington, the director of Crossroads, and playwright Amina McIntyre. She wrote episode six for Crossroads. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks for having us, Lois. Yes, I'm so happy to virtually meet you. Please tell us how the idea for a serialized podcast series came about. Well, Amanda and I were brainstorming about some you know, digital programming ideas, and she came with three or four like really good, interesting ideas, one of which was a podcast. And at the time, we didn't have a full picture of where that would go, but we sort of brainstormed and talked about it and set up a a process for it brought on the writers, and the rest is history. <laughs> okay. Amanda, can you give us just a summary of Crossroads? Yes. Crossroads is this adventure between three friends. And I, I was telling the cast in our first night a couple of days ago that it's, it's the journey to see change and to not just accept what has been placed in front of you. And sometimes you actively go into that change and sometimes you are thrust in that change, which is what the main character's soul, that's what has happened to her. She's thrust into change, but she grows and she flourishes in the environment that the playwrights have created for her. And I hope I'm not spoiling anything when I say that she meets the devil herself 
Oh, no, you're not spoiling anything. The devil is mentioned in episode one, and we get to see the devil in episode two. So I don't think that's that's too much of a spoiler. But yeah, the devil is reimagined, which I, I really appreciate. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm quoting here. This is an adventurous story by people of color, about people of color, and for people of color. How does that inform this series? I think the playwrights were able to put their lived experience into the characters without it always focusing on being colored in a situation, but more so the intersectionality of life. And so it just enriched the text by seeing people as fully dimensional and not just their color. Yeah, a total presentation of story from that point of view. Amina, you wrote episode six in this series. How do you balance your creative freedom while maintaining the podcast storyline? Well, it was actually quite fun to think about how I could push myself for this. So what happens was I got all five episodes prior to mine um, because I was on episode six. I got a chance to at least see what came before. And my duty was to first say, hey, let's stick with the integrity of the play, but also see where I can push because it wasn't a genre that I'm normally used to being seen writing in. And so it was actually quite fun to I'm challenging myself to say, hey, so if I like to, to think about character development, if I like to think about magical realism, and if I like to think about those particular elements of how my own work tends to work, and especially also ritual, what does it look like in this particular world? And so it wasn't hard to come up with it. It was just hard to think about coming after such brilliant writers. And once you hear the podcast, you'll see exactly what I mean, because the world just goes higher and higher and you really wonder where to go next and where what episode could possibly do for you next. This is exciting. Without giving us spoilers, can you tell us what you explore in your episode? Yeah, so I explore conversations between, I guess, for, I'm, let me make sure I'm not spoiling, between the devil and the one other person who I felt had the same kind of power dynamic in the group. I also explored a little deeper the main character's backstory, kind of how they became friends and what's, um, why they stick together and also tried to help enrich um, who's around them and probably assisting them on their particular journey. So we just kind of get a, a glimpse of some of their backstory in my particular episode. What notions or concepts of earth and hell does this podcast try to challenge? I'll take that one. I was talking to one of the playwrights, Sky Passmore, and he mentioned this lovely thing of we on earth have this perception of what heaven and hell may look like, but we didn't want to go there with the podcast. We wanted to be able to create our own conventions so then these characters could live under any circumstances and the the listener would buy that. So in Sky's episode, we get taken on a journey ah. so that we know that our earthly thought process, it's not that it's not allowed. 
it's not the norm here. And so we get introduced to new norms. The synopsis of Crossroads says that the characters are catapulted into a strange world that brings them face to face with the devil herself. We mentioned this at the beginning. The word devil in the Greek is a masculine singular adjective. Why do you think that is? Well, I think so many stories in our various mythologies have been centered on the patriarchal tradition and, and male lenses. And so I think we're at a point now in our development as humans that we are mercifully starting to recognize that those lenses through which our shared myths have been formulated aren't necessarily the only way to think about them. And now as to why the playwright who created this character in this way did so, I certainly wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but I was completely delighted when I saw that the devil was presented as female. Well, what is the saying in theater? The devil gets all the songs, right? <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. Maybe it was in film. Okay. That's great, though. I love it. <laughs> so why not let a woman have a chance finally to get the songs? Freddie, in now almost 12 months, theater has had such challenges in remaining connected with audiences. This is a wonderful opportunity for you with the podcast. And I wondered if you think Actors Express will produce more in the future. Well, it's so funny that you ask that because we've been talking about just that whether it's a continuation of this story and series or whether it's a new one, we've been doing a lot of talking lately and, and thinking and brainstorming about which of the sort of digital platforms and storytelling styles that we've turned to out of necessity might be worth continuing. Which do we want never to see again? <laughs> which do we want to keep on? And what I love about the podcast idea, I was talking about this with one of our actors yesterday, is that it's such a great opportunity to reimagine storytelling and really in a conscious and deliberate way take stories to people where they are rather than have them have to come where we are. Hmm. Amina, Amanda, I was reading something recently actually by a critic who was saying how much he has enjoyed virtual performances of plays and audio theater. Do you think this has been a silver lining from the pandemic? I absolutely think that it has been a silver lining. For me personally, I've gotten a chance to see readings of a lot of my favorite playwrights and I've heard different other performances that I would never have been able to, either because it wasn't going to be on my schedule or because they, we all just live in different places. And I do think that it has brought us a lot closer. It's also given some opportunities to playwrights who 
never would have been in the room together or playwrights whose voices haven't been able to emerge. And when I think about even the playwrights on this podcast, Natasha, Sky, Parker, Avery, and Quinn Hernandez, all of these persons are people who I've known around the city and have seen some of their work, but I haven't been able to even work with them or see some of their fuller work. And so I'm really excited to see that there are new opportunities coming for playwrights who may not have had these opportunities had it not been a pandemic. Amanda, is this something that, as Freddie was describing, you'd want to see stay? Oh my goodness, yes. This, (laughs) (laughs) I, (laughs) I laugh because I'm thinking about the beginning to now, and we've been working on this project since I think late October, early November. And while that was, it was a great start, it was also a lot of work. But now that we know what we're doing, it's like, okay, let's do this again. I'm ready to see where this adventure takes us. Well, Amanda Washington, Amina McIntyre, Freddie Ashley, congratulations on arriving at the crossroads. Thank you so much, Lois. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Artistic Director Freddie Ashley, Amanda Washington, Director of Crossroads, and Amina McIntyre, writer of Episode 6 of Crossroads. The podcast will drop Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming sites. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.